0: Good morning, church. It is really good to be with you again, as usual, on the Lord's Day. And it's just uh, sweet to be with you all. It was sweet to pray with those of us uh, that were up here on the platform today in my office. And it's a joy to be here to proclaim God's Word. Well, one of my uh, favorite movies, my favorite films... It's from 1986. Hoosiers, anybody? Anybody know Hoosiers? Uh, Like all uh, good movies, uh, the plot travels along various contours, various themes. There's several themes in in the film. There's uh, the theme of the alcoholic father fighting for sobriety theme, and and the pain, and the conflict, and, and the victory involved in that. And then there's these two people will never fall in love theme. And we, we have any, uh, any people out there that like those, those movies, the, the love stories? Yeah, so these two people are never going to fall in love, but they fall in love. The, the coach and the, the teacher who are just on opposite ends about things. There's, there's that theme. And then there's the theme of, of the small country school, the main theme of the movie the small country school, farm school, high school from Hickory, Indiana, and their basketball team that makes it to the state championship. And they're going against the mighty city team from Indianapolis that's bigger and stronger and and mightier. There's that theme. That's the central theme of the movie. And I won't give the movie away. Those of you who haven't seen it, you should, should go watch it. You might have an idea where it goes, but um, the big game between the high school farm town of Hickory and the big city high school team from Indianapolis are in the state championship, this little school versus big school. And, and near the end of the movie, you're, you're in the locker room and the coach has, has delivered his awesome and inspirational speech to his team that's, that's going out against these, these giants from the city. And before, uh, before they go out to the court and after the coach's speech, this uh, film takes place in the 1950s, so of course the, the pastor from the town is in the locker room in Indianapolis for this, for this big game. And the pastor paraphrases a verse from today's passage of scripture from 1 Samuel 17. And from memory, he he paraphrases 1 Samuel 17 and verse 48. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. The pastor paraphrases that passage, and the team's ready to go out and charge uh, the court. Well, the theology that's presented uh, makes for a great movie in that locker room. But I want to suggest that the theology, the application, and theology of that passage that comes across in that film is that God is for the small country school, the small team, and God is going to defeat this big city team, and they're going to fall Like this great big giant. It makes for a great movie. But it is not the theology that God wants us to take away from 1 Samuel 17. The theology of 1 Samuel 17 is not that you are going to defeat giants from the big city and that you and I are favored by God if we happen to be small or from a place like Hickory in Indiana that makes actually for bad theology. This is, today's chapter, we'll be in it next week as well, one of the most famous and epic stories in the Bible. But it doesn't really teach what we make it out to teach and what that film makes it out to teach. What does this passage actually teach? And what does God want to say to us on this day Not from Hollywood, not from popular culture, not from this great movie, but what does he want to say today to us from his word? And what does this passage teach? Let's, hopefully if your Bible's already open or your device is open, let's turn to the word now and be careful observers of what this text has to say and what it means uh, to our lives. Let's begin looking back at chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socoh in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damon between Socoh and Ezkah. Verse 2 Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley. In between them. Let's pause here for just a moment. Um, I can't read this passage without thinking of that valley. If you travel to Israel, almost certainly you will stop in this valley where this battle took place. Any of you? Any of you been there? Am I the only one? Anybody? Few of you. So you have this place in your mind. And if I would, at this moment, be an advertisement and say to put on your to-do list to travel to Israel, it changes your reading of Scripture, including passages like this. So some of us have been there, and we've seen that valley, and we've seen a hill over here, and we've seen a hill over there. And they are encamped there, this powerful superpower, the Philistine army, and the weaker, less sophisticated, less armed, Israelite army and they are about to do battle. Now if you haven't been here in recent weeks we know some things about what is going on here. We know that there is a new king that has been anointed but it wasn't a public anointing or a public inauguration. We know that the current king Saul has turned away from the Lord and the Lord has turned away from the current king Saul. The Spirit of God has left Saul, the anointing Spirit of God that comes upon an ancient king of the chosen people Israel. It has left Saul. He is the commander-in-chief of this army. We know all of this. And they are gathered there ready to do battle on either side. This is the context that is set in verses 1 through 3. Let's come back to our text. Look at verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. My text, the NIV, says he was over nine feet tall. A more literal way to translate the Hebrew text here was what Curtis read, which said he was six cubits in a span. Now that's very accurate, but if you're like me, I'm not too familiar with what a cubit is. Are you familiar with what a cubit is? So six cubits and a span. So this translation decides to go ahead and let us know in our, our culture what, what this means. He is over nine feet tall. I don't want to dwell on this too much, but just briefly here, there, this is one of those places where the manuscripts, there's some disagreement. So the Hebrew text, the most reliable text, is the Masoretic text, And 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 you would translate that six cubits in a span or something over just over nine feet. Some of the other manuscripts say five cubits in a span. And some of the other manuscripts, the Septuagint, for example, says four cubits in a span. What I want to say here is this guy is tall. He is tall. Whether he is six cubits in a span, whether he is five cubits in a span, whether he is four cubits in a span, not certain. Most likely, he's six cubits in a span, which is over nine feet tall. Now again, this is not a main thing of Scripture, but I'm taking some time here because I think as human beings, as believers, I don't know if you're a believer, I think most of us here are, but there may be some skeptics or people who don't believe here today whether you're a believer or whether you're a skeptic, when you read a verse like verse 9, one way to respond to this, at least internally, this is a way that I might respond to this text, is this isn't true story. This is described as a true story. We have details. We have all of this stuff. But come on. Over nine feet tall? Uh, I personally, Mike Ernst, have never seen anyone nine feet tall. Paul. So, when we read this verse or we read other verses like this, if we dwell on them, we might have somewhat of a crisis of faith in God who supposedly inspired the scriptures. Did he really do that? This seems like a fanciful description of a great warrior. And so, what I want to say to us, in light of not just of this verse, but there are all kinds of verses and paragraphs and chapters that you or I might read. And if we are honest with ourselves, we, we might strain, we, we might be pushing ourselves to say, yeah, I, I believe this happened. I know this happened. We might actually, if we're honest, intellectually honest, say, I have a hard time believing this guy was over nine feet tall, or whatever it is, whatever passage you're reading. So what I want to say in light of that is it is important to look at the evidence Whatever it is, whatever passage you're reading, and you doubt the veracity. Some scripture is a story. It's made up. It's, it's a parable. It's, it's not real. But when it's presented as historical narrative, like this actually happened, and there's details here, and I'm struggling to, to believe this, I want to suggest that the scriptures you will find will hold up. And you need to look vigorously for evidence and also pray for the Lord to help you to see that his word is actually accurate and is inspired. So again, this isn't the main point of the text at all. I'm taking more time on this than I would like to, but this is one way you might deal with this. Some of you may be familiar with this. Maybe you've heard about this guy in a sermon. Robert Pershing Wadlow, known as the Giant of Illinois. He died in 1940. His height was eight feet 11 inches. His shoe size, 37 double A. Now, if you're a skeptic, I did this purposely. All I did was put the text on the screen here. If you're a skeptic, you're like, are you kidding me? Is this really happened? Well, this is, there are people supposedly that were actually taller than this man in history, including Goliath. But we don't have any video or documentary evidence for Goliath and for many other people that were nine feet tall or something like that in the many centuries since who have supposedly lived. But we actually have historical documentary evidence uh, for this guy, Robert Pershing Waldlow, the giant of Illinois, who was almost nine feet tall. As you might guess, if that's your height, there are a lot of photos taken of you. There is a lot of evidence for his existence. So, when we understand, even though I've never seen someone who's almost 9 feet tall, 8 feet 11 inches, that this happens. That, that this is something in history that, that happens. Well, now I come to 1 Samuel 17 with a little different perspective. And I want to suggest to you that the scriptures will bear out whatever you're reading. And in your soul, your intellect, your mind is going, I'm not sure. When the scriptures present something as a historical fact, is this actually a historical fact? It is an actual historical fact. Now, I spent too much time on that, but I think it was important. Say, it's okay, Mike. Okay, it's all right, Mike. So here we go. That is not the main point of the text. This guy's height and our struggles with it. But it is a point of the text. So let's come back to our text now. We're at verse 5. He had this extraordinarily tall man, six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. And he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, which is 125 pounds, folks. So his, his armor weighs more than some adults, 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, which that might not mean anything to you, but to an ancient Israelite, a weaver's rod had a loop and a cord wound around it. And so this, to the military person or the ancient military person, had the understanding that this thing has accuracy and distance because it would spin as you threw it. This is a technologically, this is like the stealth bomber or something of ancient times. There is technology here in the weaver's rod, in his spear, that is like the weaver's rod. It would have a diameter that no one here could get their hand around. And it was a high-tech spear. Verse 7, its iron point weighed 600 shekels, my text says, which was about 15 pounds. 15 pounds, the tip of the spear weighed 15 pounds, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer, the last sentence here in verse 7, his shield bearer went ahead of him. Now, this is interesting to me that there aren't details here about the shield bearer. Now, if you study ancient warfare, look at some background here, the shield bearer would be the guy who has a shield that covers the entire body, normally, of the warrior, so that there's not like a, a, you know, a, a slide shot, that, that he's not, there is someone hiding in the bushes ready to ambush him. The, the shield bearer is there to just protect this guy until the battle's about to uh, go, and then... Move his shield aside. Now it's interesting. There's no details about the size of the shield or the guy carrying it. So I, I don't know. I, I in my mind, th- this is just a joke. Like who has a shield that someone could carry for a guy that's nine feet tall that's going to cover his entire? Like I think it was just ceremonial. I don't think the shield was going to protect the nine foot tall man from the lobbed rock or whatever that might come his way before uh, the battle. Is there? All right. So where are we? We are. Uh, we, we've we've made it through the the shield. I lost my place. Uh, that's verse seven. Back to verse eight. We're at verse eight. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? A uh, paraphrase: Am I not from the superpower? We, 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 you are nothing." We're Philistines. Am I not a Philistine and you are not the servants of Saul? Choose a man, have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. So what is going on here is what was called a, a battle of champions. Or a contest of champions. This wasn't just an ordinary duel or a fight. But in ancient times there, there would be situations, a very gentlemanly, a way of doing battle. Instead of us losing all kinds of soldiers and bloodshed, we're going to each choose a representative. And we're going to agree, the commanders in chief are going to agree that whoever wins this wins the war and, and the battle. And so we're not going to fight the battle. We're just going to have these two guys uh, go at it. This was part of ancient Warfare, this battle of champions. And this is what is suggested by this massive Philistine, this extraordinarily rare giant of a man known as Goliath. Now we're getting eventually here to theology. What are we supposed to take away from this text today? And today we're just in verses 1 through 24. And one of the main things, I have two things. One of the main things that I think we are supposed to take away from this passage, that is 1 through 24, uh, comes in verse 11 and comes in verse 24. Look at verse 11 with me. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. There is not a person on the battlefield who has faith and confidence that God will see them through this. This is not a healthy fear. This is not a healthy dismaying. There there is no one there, these two armies assembled, those of you that have been there, on either side of those hills. And there is no one in the army of the covenant-keeping God of Israel who has trust and confidence in God to see us through this time. Let's go ahead and jump to the end, our last verse for today. We're going to hit the middle also, but go ahead and jump to verse 24. When the Israelites saw the man, Goliath, they ran from him in great fear. This is cowardice. This is not confidence in the covenant-keeping God of Israel. What is missing here? This is not a passage that primarily teaches that if you go to a small country school, that your basketball team will beat the big city school. That is not what this passage teaches. This passage to the careful reader is opening our eyes that there is no one on the scene who trusts and believes that God will see them through this, including the king, Saul, who the reader knows isn't really the king anymore. God has left him because Saul has left God, that David has been anointed. The reader knows this, but no one on the scene knows. There is no one on the scene who knows and trusts God for this trial, this battle that is before them. So as a Christian, as we read 1 Samuel 17, we want to link it with passages that are very well known to us like Philippians 4 which teaches, do not be anxious about anything. And in the Greek text, that means anything, including a giant who is threatening your life. Do not be anxious, Christian in 2022, about anything, no matter what has come your way but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Many of you have memorized this passage. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This theology is nowhere to be found among the believers in the covenant-keeping people of God, the chosen people of God, getting ready to go into battle. Well, some of you who are Critical might be saying, well, that's in the New Testament, Mike. So, of course, they didn't have that. That's correct. You're correct, if that's what you're thinking. This same theology in Philippians 4 is in the Old Testament as well, however. We could go somewhere like Habakkuk 3 or many other places. Look at the spirit and confidence in Habakkuk 3. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the, vine, on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will be joyful in God my savior this is the contrast habakkuk 3 with the with the skeptic doubting faithless Saul and his army that's on the hillside about to battle, or about to not to battle, about to run away. This theology isn't there. Now to just stay in Habakkuk 3 for a moment. Take yourself back. You know, we're in 1 Samuel 17, we're in about a a thousand BC. Take yourself back 3,000 years. There are no Rayleigh's, there are no safeways, there is no taco tree to run to after the service. For food, it comes from the ground outside your house and that food go, grows by rain that comes from the lord and there is no food because there has been no rain in habakkuk 3 there are no sheep to slaughter and to eat there are no cows we have famine we have starvation you've seen the videos the commercials you give money to the, that's the situation we have in habakkuk 3 But the believer here has confidence that God is going to see him or her, him and her and them, through everybody who believes and has faith through this famine. That faith is absent in 1 Samuel 17. And the reader is supposed to see this. Again, this is not a passage that says you should live in a small country town. And if you do, and you're small, God will be with you, and you will defeat all of the big bad city people. That is not what this passage teaches. What's missing here in 1 Samuel 17 is the grace to believe that God is sufficient to see us through this Goliath, this battle. That's missing. And we are supposed to see this. So as I say this, another thing this passage is not teaching is that God is with you and you, and therefore you will have victory in all of the battles that you face. It's not teaching that. That's what happens here. We all know that. Hollywood knows that. But that's not what this passage, that's not what the scripture is teaching us. We read this passage in light of all scripture. In light of all scripture, if we ask ourselves the question, does the believing person always win the battle? How did it turn out for John the Baptist? His head was cut off. He obeyed God. He was the greatest of humans in many ways. I'm paraphrasing. That's how the scriptures describe him. You remember, people thought he was the Messiah. People were worshiping John. He's like, no, there's one coming after me that's, that's much more worthy. Don't, don't worship me. This guy was dialed. This guy, John the Baptist, had this perspective of Habakkuk 3. So what I'm trying to say when I say grace, what's missing in 1 Samuel 17 is the grace to believe that God is sufficient. Don't hear me say that 1 Samuel 17 is teaching that if you believe that God is sufficient, that you're going to win every single battle in the way that you want. Because the Bible doesn't teach that either. John the Baptist had his head cut off as he was faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there was Jesus who was crucified and suffered immensely. So in reality... In the totality of Scripture, including 1 Samuel 17, the Bible actually has a lot to say about suffering and enduring it. It doesn't say the way that Hollywood takes 1 Samuel 17 in that if you are a small person from a small town and a believer, that you're going to defeat every enemy. That is not what 1 Samuel 17 is teaching. You and I need grace to believe that God is sufficient for every single thing that comes our way in, life, in our lives. He may give us victory like we're going to see next week. He does to David and to Israel or like John the Baptist or like Jesus, we may suffer immensely. Either way, he is with us and we need his grace. And that is what is missing among every person on the scene in that valley, those of you that have been there, who are followers of this great creator, this covenant-keeping God of Israel. What's missing is grace to believe that God is sufficient. Let's come back to the text here. We've already hit the last verse, verse 24, but we have the middle to cover, verses 12 through 23. So let's look at 12, 1 Samuel 17. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse who was from Bethlehem and Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Verse 13, Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. Paraphrase here. These guys, these three sons, their photos in their dress uniforms are in the house right when you walk in. David's isn't. But these three boys, their photos there in uniform. The firstborn was Eliab. His picture's there as you walk into the house in in his dress blues. The second, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. their pictures were there. Verse 14, David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So the older boys are soldiers in uniform. The younger boy, David, he tends to the sheep. They don't have Rayleigh's. So he's tending the sheep. A seemingly insignificant thing from Jesse's perspective. And the reader, the, the, the author of 1 Samuel is wanting the reader to see this perspective. You remember what else David was doing? He had two part-time jobs. One was taking care of the sheep, and the other was what? Playing the harp for Saul. You don't put pictures of that when you're a dad on the entryway to the house of the boy with the sheep and the boy playing the harp. You put the pictures of the boys in uniform. So the boy who, from the father's perspective, is not the warrior and not in uniform, is the, is the, is the messenger boy. He's, he's, he's running back and forth doing these tasks that need to be done while his older brothers are off at war. So that brings us to 15. Let's come back to the text here. So verse 16, now we come back to the, to, to the suspense of, of this valley. For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took a stand. Uh, it's hard to use your imaginations here. It's hard to convey this. So, battle is like, you know, military people. If you're a military person, man, you, you like firefighters, they want to put out fires. Policemen, they want to get bad guys in the back of their car. And, and warriors, they, they want to fight. But they're not fighting for 40 days. They're ready. But each day, this guy, Goliath, every morning and evening comes out and invites us to skip the battle and let's, let's do this the gentlemanly way. Let, let's do it. Verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers, pictures in the entryway, and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. The author here is telling us, okay, yeah, his sons, they're not commanders. So the commander you know, I mean, he, imagine what his, where his picture is in his dad's house. The commander gets ten cheeses. David is like the mailman. Take the ten cheeses to the commander and, and, and the bread to your brothers. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. Verse 19, they are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the Valley of Allah fighting against the Philistines. They aren't actually fighting. But this is what Jesse thinks is going on. So I don't want to put Jesse down too much here. He, I would probably, most of us dads would be doing the exact same thing Jesse was doing. If we lived in an ancient culture, our sons are at war. Hey, send him some food. Hey, give his commander this, help him out. There's no kitchen crew there. There's no Rayleigh's to go to. They can't confiscate something. It's coming from family. It's coming from the Israelites. So this is what any one of us, I want to suggest, would probably do. And what the reader is, what the author here, who is both the Holy Spirit and the human author, is wanting us to see here, is wanting us to see that this Jesse has a simple faith and he's doing a good thing. He doesn't see the importance of David. We do as the reader. He's doing this simple thing of of helping his older sons who are at war. And the reader sees this incomprehensibly complex sovereign God. Now you know the end of the story. You know that the significant sons are not the older ones in uniform whose pictures are in the entryway. The significant son is the one who's been tending the sheep. Significant for the kingdom of God. They're all equally significant for God on one level. But on another level, in the light of the story of all of 1 Samuel, the one who is going to advance the kingdom of God, the one from whom a greater David will come, the Messiah Jesus, is the, is the youngest one who, who doesn't have a uniform. And who is actually delivering the food. He's the Uber Eats guy. That's David. Who plays the harp doesn't have his picture up in the entryway. The reader is supposed to see here. The the message of 1 Samuel 17 is not move to a small town and your basketball team will beat the big city team. The message here, the second thing, the first thing is grace to believe that God is sufficient. The second thing is that Jesse has a simple faith in an incomprehensibly complex and sovereign God. And when as believers, we are faithful in simple things, God, from way up here in ways that no one can understand, it's beyond mathematics, it's beyond reason, it's beyond the most sophisticated and smartest people around, our sovereign God is achieving his purposes and advancing his kingdom through a faithful father who's sending food to his older sons. These are the, this is the theology, these are the messages of 1 Samuel 17. This great and popular story teaches something very different than the way Hollywood takes it, although it's a great movie and you need to watch that movie. It's not accurate theologically, but it is a good movie. So as we come to land this plane today, and we'll have another week with David and Goliath next Sunday, I think the right question to ask here for you and I in 2022 as believers, in light of 1 Samuel 17, is to ask the question Is Jesus sufficient for blank? And by blank, I mean Goliath. By blank, I mean the trials in your life. By blank, I mean the illness, the broken marriage, the children. Not exactly where I thought they would be or where I want them to be. Is Jesus sufficient for what is going on in your life? That is how the Christian should read 1 Samuel 17. Nobody there, we're going to see there's actually an exception. There is someone there, you know the end of the story, and he sees God as sufficient. But up until this point, verse 24, we don't see anybody. That sees God as sufficient to take them through this. Whatever joy you're experiencing in life, whatever trial you're experiencing in life today, Jesus is sufficient to see you through that and to help you. Close telling you about my week briefly this week. I was in Ohio this week for two days visiting my mother, my sister, and family. Just went there to see them. And one of the joys was seeing my sister's daughter, my niece, Samantha. And Samantha, I think the proper language to use today is special needs child. And she's not a child in many ways. I I don't even, I'm bad with ages and names. I know her name, but I think she's about 20. I don't know how old she is. And I heard several times from my sister and her husband in these couple days I was there this week. um, Comments like, um, comments that have been with them, a heart that's been with them for a long time, like Samantha's going to be with us for the rest of our lives. Uh, Samantha is not going to leave and cleave, as most of us leave our parents. Uh, she's not going to leave. She's going to be with us for the duration, and they, they talked to me a little bit about that at different times. And I saw the hearts of, this is my brother-in-law, my sister's, Husband, this is last, last night at a wedding that I kind of got in trouble for. I left yesterday morning and I kind of was supposed to be there for the wedding, but I missed the wedding because I wanted to be here with you this morning. That's what I told them. But this is last night at the wedding, my brother-in-law uh, dancing with his daughter, Samantha. Um, again, if we go back, I'm not sure how many years, when she was born 20 years ago, they didn't anticipate having a child that would be with them for the rest of their lives. This is their Goliath, if you will. This is their challenge. And Jesus is sufficient. And their faith has been sufficient to make them into beautiful and wonderful parents, even though they're looking at a situation and have for many years that they didn't anticipate or ask for. And what a precious Person full of love. One of the highlights of being there was being around Samantha and her parents and seeing how God worked powerfully through this. This is more about what 1 Samuel 17 is about than about winning a basketball game or beating the big city guys. It is about Jesus, the covenant keeping God of Israel, being sufficient to see us through whatever comes into our lives. If you're a military person, it's a battle. If you're a mom and dad, it's our family not going in the direction that we had anticipated our family going in, but Jesus is sufficient not only to see us through, but to make this beautiful. We're going to see David, unlike everyone else there in that valley, have this attitude next week. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the opportunity to study it and understand it. It's very rare that Hollywood takes the word of God and accurately handles it. We pray that you would help us by your spirit to be good stewards of the Bible. Lord, we know that your heart for us is to be men and women who acknowledge that Jesus is sufficient, that the covenant-keeping God of Israel is sufficient to see us through, especially things that we never anticipated that are incredibly difficult in life, and that we would trust you, that Jesus would be sufficient. Whatever it is that, that fills in the blank in your life, my prayer for each of us right now is that we would understand that Jesus, and only Jesus, is sufficient to see us through those most difficult, difficult challenges in life. We acknowledge you, God, as sovereign. And finally today, I pray, uh, the second theological point here in this passage is just Jesse's simple faithfulness. He has no idea how important David is. He sees the importance of his military uniform-wearing sons, but just his simple faithfulness of taking food to them and David being on the scene It's just huge under your sovereign hand, God. And I know that many of us here, you call to do simple things faithfully before you and that similarly, you are gonna do significant things that we couldn't imagine or even see through our simple acts of faithfulness like Jesse's. So we pray for those two things, for simple faithfulness and for a faith to believe that Jesus is sufficient for no matter what comes into our lives. We pray this in his name and for his kingdom. Amen.